Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. During World War II, the carnage became unmanageable as soldiers fearlessly fought for the freedom and the well-being of our people as well as our allies. Henry Beecher, a medic during the war, had the responsibility of administering morphine to the wounded soldiers. As the injuries continued to rise, Beecher ran out of morphine. He knew he needed to do something, so Beecher switched out the morphine with a simple saline solution. But rather than tell the soldiers what he had done, he continued to have them think that it was morphine. What Beecher soon discovered was that almost half the soldiers reported the saline solution reduced and even in some cases eradicated their pain. What happened? Did the saline solution work as effectively as morphine? And those of you that are in the science industry know that that's absolutely not the case. What took place with the soldiers that day is what we would refer to as the placebo effect. The placebo effect has been utilized by medical personnel for years. And in fact, in World War II, that was not the first time that it was administered. The word placebo has been part of the medical jargon since really the 18th century. During the 18th century, the patient's demand for medication outweighed the supply, and so what doctors did and pharmacists did began to administer really a medication that was powerless in order to convince the people that what they were taking was helping their uh, ailments. And in many of those cases, they really didn't have anything that was wrong with them. They just psychologically brought that about themselves. And what they discovered through this process by administering sugar pills and such was that the psychological effects that the placebo had upon the patients that were believed to be sick was really inherently nothing wrong with them. And so they actually felt better based upon the very thought that they were taking something to, to heal their pain. Now, of course, things have changed, and I'm sure that if that medic was to do what he did in World War II in a hospital today, it would be frowned upon. I also understand that placebos are often used in medical research when trying out a new vaccine or drug, the COVID example being a a part of that, and some of you participated in those type of trial studies. But the point is the same. What is a placebo? A placebo is a harmless pill or medicine that serves the purpose most of the time of convincing someone that they are ingesting the real deal when really they aren't. And for centuries, many professing Christians have ingested a placebo form of Christianity. You say, Pastor Brandon, what do you mean? Many people are convinced that their relationship with God has been restored based upon a prayer or a certain action or set of actions in which they've committed. Many people believe that they are saved based upon the fact that they believe in God and even at times believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. In so doing, what people do is hold on to those actions as being the very means of salvation when they are actually doing nothing more than accepting a placebo. Take your Bibles with me and turn to James chapter 2 as we continue our study here this morning in the book of James. The James was a letter written by James, who was not an apostle, not one of the twelve disciples, but really the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So from a biblical definition, he was an apostle, but he was not one of the twelve disciples. 
He wrote this letter to the people that were once a part of his church that had transitioned or shifted over or moved out as a result of the persecution that crept into that area. Uh, James really being a person that was, was a prominent pillar within the church, he continued to serve the Lord in multiple different ways, in multiple different areas, and through multiple different uh, methods. Thank you uh, for that. Even though the people fled, James still loved the Christian Jews and still had a heart to see them live for Christ. And so concerned about the people that had transitioned out, he was concerned that they would be influenced by a lot of the people that were uh, really false prophets and that were out there for, uh, for their own gain. And so he writes this letter really for the purpose of describing this. If you claim to be a Christian, then act like it. And as we discussed over the past several weeks, he breaks this book up into several different sections in order to deliver that point. The first section deals with our response to trials. How do Christians respond to trials when they do come their way? Do we just throw our hands up and say, God, you know, whatever, I'm not going to walk with you anymore? No, that would not be an evidence of a person that is genuinely uh, walking with the Lord. Now we're in our second section, and this deals with the actions or the fruits of a Christian. If you claim to be a Christian, then this is how you ought to act. And what we looked at so far was really the fruits of a Christian and what that is produced. We looked at last week the love of a Christian, the impartiality that Christians must show towards all people that walk in the church doors. But this week, as we approach our text, James deals with the subject of how works and genuine faith relate and coincide with each other. And so the focus of our text this morning is going to be in verses 14 down to verse 26 of James chapter 2. And so let's read it together. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son to the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Believers at this particular time, actually before this, were first referred to as Christians in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, is recording of that. They were first referred to Christians in Antioch. This term was given to men and women whose speech, behavior, and activity reflected the very character of Christ. The very word itself literally means a follower of Christ. But in our modern day, the word Christian has been loosely applied to refer to someone that simply attends church or perhaps even just believes in God. In fact, the Barna Group is a research group looked at the term evangelical that the media has placed upon those that identify themselves as church going. And in their research, they found that one out of every four adults who say they are evangelicals or refer to themselves as a Christian are actually not genuinely born again. We say, well, how does Barna define a born again believer? This is what they say. 
The Barna Group defines someone that is born again based upon that individual's claim that they have made a personal commitment to Jesus, their confession of their sins and acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice based upon the fact that Christ is still important in their life today. What the Barna, the Barna Group has found, which is being a Christian polling group, recognize the fact that born-again believers reveal themselves through their life commitment of Jesus. So if you look at that definition, they really found that one out of every four people who claim to be Christian are genuinely born again. Going back to the placebo effect, a placebo is a medicine that is harmless and it yields no real results to someone that takes it. But someone that thinks themselves to be sick when they really aren't believe that if they were to take that placebo, it actually is, is a real medicine that is healing them. And really, it's nothing more than a psychological ploy. From a spiritual standpoint, many people today are convinced that simply a belief in Christ equates them as being good with God. And what James tells us in this passage this morning is that genuine Christianity is more than just a one-time prayer that you make. It manifests itself through a lifelong commitment. And so our goal this morning is to discover what does it mean and what does Christianity look like based upon the fruits that are displayed within a profession Christian's life. And so the title of our message this morning is Genuine Christianity Demonstrates Good Works. When I was in junior high, uh, about probably your girls' age, maybe a little bit older, I had one particular class that I was involved in that I did not care about. It wasn't history. I loved history. It was probably English. I don't remember exactly which class it was, but we're just going to go with that one. And I remember being in that class, I uh, didn't want to be there. And so I tried to convince the teacher out of my persuasive skills that she ought to allow us to go to the gym and play basketball rather than uh, studying for English class. And in my strong persuasive abilities, I realized that she was not buying it. And so I tried to really go for the jugular and I tried to convince her that uh, Miss So-and-so, by you not allowing me to go to the gym, you could be forfeiting an opportunity for me to practice and to make it to the NBA, being full serious with her. And she looked at me and she said, Brandon, you will never make it to the NBA. You're too, you're too short. And it was at that moment that I realized she was absolutely right. I was never making it to the NBA. I was just trying my best to be able to convince her. Just because we proclaim something or say something does not necessarily mean that it's true. So we can try to convince somebody all day long that we are a Christian and say it over and over again, but that does not necessarily mean that it's true. And I think that one of the most dangerous things within the church today is what we refer to as a salvation prayer. You say, Pastor Brandon, do you do that almost every week? Yes, so let me explain. Salvation prayer, if we are not presenting it in the right way, can cause people to believe that if they pray this prayer, their relationship with God is automatically restored without fully understanding the impacts of the gospel. So we say these words, and, it's, and, I, and I've had conversations with people that are struggling, and I share the gospel with them, and they're like, yeah, I'm ready to make that change. And so they pray the prayer, and I can't see their hearts. I can only trust in God through that. But what is soon revealed to me after they pray that prayer is really they were just saying something in order for God to get them out of that tight spot. But I'm good with God because I prayed that prayer when I was five, six, whatever the case may be. We refer to that as easy believism. As one source calls it, easy believism is the notion that many unbelievers will say, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, while others say, I prayed a prayer and the preacher said that I was saved, but such prayers and such belief do not necessarily signal a change of heart. 
The problem is a misunderstanding of the word belief. What genuine, true salvation reveals to us is a real life change, which brings us to our first point here this morning. Genuine faith is not the result of a recited prayer. Genuine faith is not the result of a cited prayer. Look at what James says in verse 14. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, reading that verse, many of us that grew up in a uh, church like we have here today would be uncomfortable with that. So that goes against everything that I've been taught in my entire life, that faith does not or works does not save you. And so it seems as if James is contradicting what Paul is saying. It seems when Paul says faith in Christ plus nothing equals salvation, that James is saying the complete opposite. What, how do we justify that with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9? When Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, it is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And again, we have to define the emphasis and the context of both James and Paul because they both have different purposes in their letters. Paul is writing to non-believers for the purpose of converting them to Christianity. James is writing to Christians for the purpose of them displaying their genuine Christianity. What Paul is doing is he's writing to unbelievers to explain to them what is necessary for salvation, faith in Christ alone. Not faith plus anything else. It's faith in Christ alone. What James is doing is he's writing in order for the Christians to evaluate their faith. In other words, do the works and the fruit of your life produce something that has really taken place in your heart? So while it is true that salvation is only brought through faith alone in the finished work of Christ, it is not a mere salvation prayer that will save someone. Genuine salvation is more than a head knowledge. It is what? It's a heart transformation. It is a full and complete surrender to the will of God. And this is what James wants the readers to think about. He says, you say you have faith, but you don't display that faith in your actions, then your faith is dead. Your faith is dead. The Bible makes it clear that there are many that will say at the end of their life that profess to be Christians that that they say that they're followers of Christ, but really genuine salvation has never taken place in the heart. Towards the end, or the conclusion part of the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus Christ is preaching and he's, he's teaching the people. He describes those that profess to be Christians that were never genuine followers of Christ in this way. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He goes on to say, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I would declare to him, this is probably the scariest passage in all of Scripture. I never knew you. Depart from me, you that practice lawlessness. What is Jesus saying in this passage? Some people will claim all day long that they are followers of Christ, but if they do not do the will of the Father, they will not enter the kingdom of of heaven. Well, so you may ask yourself, well, what is the will of the Father? What does that mean? It's a repentance, and it's a life commitment to Christ. The will of the Father is genuine salvation. Jesus says that genuine salvation will naturally produce genuine works. Perhaps one of the most graphic explanations of James's point here is found in this parable of the sower. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus delivers a parable of different seeds in order to explain the response that people have towards the gospel. 
And there's four different ones that he expresses here. First off, he talks about the seed that has fallen by the wayside. The seed that has fallen by the wayside is, is taken up by birds, so to speak. Then he talks about another seed, and that seed is fallen on stony ground. And what happens is it immediately springs up, and then it withers away. And then you have a third seed. That third seed fell into thorns, and the thorns choked the seed, never allowing it to produce any kind of fruit. But then you have the fourth seed. And the fourth seed fell into good ground, and it produced a great crop. Say, what does that mean? Jesus goes on to explain it in Matthew chapter 13. You can write this down. Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 through 23. He says, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives the seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, but yet has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So what is Jesus really saying here? He's saying that there are four types of responses to the gospel. First off, there's those that hear the gospel. The Bible refers to it as they don't understand it. In other words, they hear it, but because of their hard heart, they reject it. They fall by the wayside, and the Bible uses the bird to describe the seed being snatched away. It's in reference to Satan pulling him away. Then you've got the second seed. In my opinion, this is the scariest seed of them all. The second seed is, is a person that hears the word, kind of going back to the salvation prayer. They hear the gospel. They become immediately happy. They pray this prayer out of emotion. But then when they enter in trials and tribulations, they walk away from God. Some people say, well, they lost their salvation. No, according to the scriptures, they never received it to begin with. The tribulation showed it. They were never genuine followers of Christ. And then you have the third seed. This is somebody that hears the gospel, but the lures and the entertainments of this world pull them away, distracting them from the truth of the gospel. That, to me, is perhaps one of the, along with the passage I read earlier, scariest parables and truths in all of scripture. And I firmly believe that the scariest situation in this passage is that seed that fell. People received it with joy, thinking they were saved. But then later on, when a trial and tribulation comes, they walk away from God. Alexander McLaurin states, The people who least live out their creeds are the same people who shout the loudest about them. For the some reason, the paralysis which affects their hands do not seem to interfere with their mouths. Going back to James, James says that it profits no man to say that he has faith, but then that faith is not backed up with the fruit of his works. James then goes on to give a specific example. Look at verses 15 and through 17. He says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The visual image that he's painting here is that you have a young couple, or any couple for that matter, uh, brother or sister, they come to church, and it is clearly evident that they are in need. Their clothes are tattered, they are hungry, they need food in their bellies. And it's as if a Christian or somebody that professes to be a Christian notices their needs 
and they say, you know what, I'm going to be praying for you. You just walk away. I'm going to be praying for you. I love you, but uh, I can't give you anything for that. What they're doing is they're just giving them lip service. I love you, and, and you're my brother, and you're my sister. I see that you're in need, but uh, I'm going to continue to pray for you, but I'm not going to do anything about it. So what he wants us to understand is that those that profess to be followers of Christ without their works backing up, it's like we talk all day long, I'm a follower of Christ, but my life that I live is in direct opposition to what God's character is. And so my life and my actions actually show to everybody who I truly am. I don't have a desire to follow God, but I can talk about it all day long. It does not mean that you're a genuine Christian. Now, what we've discussed so far has not answered the question of how works and faith intersect. Just as it is impossible to have genuine faith that does not produce genuine works, it is possible, or impossible, I should say, to have genuine works without genuine faith, which leads us to our second point. Genuine faith precedes genuine works. What James says in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Again, James isn't saying here that genuine salvation comes from faith uh, with, with faith in Christ plus works. James is attacking the objection of some that claim that simply their faith without the evidence of a transformed life was evidence of genuine salvation. To prove his point, what James does is he challenges the objector to demonstrate his genuine faith in God without his actions. And as this one commentator puts it, James says, Try to show me your faith without doing anything, and I will prove to you my faith to you without saying anything. As we all know, actions speak louder than words. Someone once said that faith is a lot like calories. They are invisible, but you can certainly see the results of those calories. James wanted the objector to understand that our genuine works is evidence of our genuine faith. They both go together. They both coincide. He was tired of hearing the excuse that simply a belief in God was good enough to restore one's relationship with God. And one of the most common objections I receive when sharing the gospel is the fact that people don't need salvation because they already believe in God. In verses 19 through 20, James hits that objection right on. As I was joking with Pastor Bryce this week, as we talked about the Apostle Paul, I think I shared this before, but you read his readings, and he's kind of all over the place until he gets to the point. James just slaps you right across the face. He says, you believe there is one God? You do well. Guess what? Even the demons believe, and they tremble. But I want you to know, or do you know, O foolish man, that faith of that works is dead. Now, for us, we'd hear it, and like, man, that's kind of strong. But for James's audience... This would have shocked them to the core. So what do you mean, Pastor Brandon? Remember, he was writing to the Christian Jews that had dispersed, right? Again, majority of them were Christians. But the Jewish faith in and of itself all agreed in a true and living God. They all agreed in one God. James had no need to convince them that there was one true and living God. They already believed it. But majority of them were not genuine Christians. In fact, some commentators report that every single morning, the Jewish uh, people would quote a prayer known as the Shema. And that prayer, it means, Hear, O Israel, is derived from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the prayer in and of itself that was quoted on a daily basis by the Jews recognizes the monotheistic nature of the Jewish religion. There was one and true living God. There was no other gods. So they recognized it. They agreed with that. But this is only part of the prayer. 
The rest of the prayer states, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. James doesn't address the rest of the prayer. He only chooses to pick out that first part of the prayer. There is only one true God. Why does he do that? Because James is highlighting the fact that many people believed in God with a head knowledge, but that head knowledge failed to make its way down to the heart. I can know about God, but I've never accepted him and given him my life. What James says in verse 19, he says, You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons in self believe and tremble. He recognized the fact that the Jews did believe in God, but they were on the same level playing field as the demons because they never allowed their faith to change their life. They never gave their life to God. In essence, they did not love the Lord their God with their heart, their soul, and their strength. But here's the point that I want to make with all of this. For genuine fruits of salvation to be produced, there must first come genuine faith. Notice that in every instance that James mentions here is the necessity of faith. The necessity of faith in God. He says we must first accept Christ in faith before we ever have any hopes of producing any kind of genuine works. We must accept that in faith. If we try to earn our way to heaven through the currency of our own good works, that currency is one that will never fulfill or pay the price in which Jesus Christ has paid himself through the death of the cross. Matter of fact, the apostle Sorry, the uh, prophet Isaiah states in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, and you've heard this verse multiple times. He says, but we are all unlike an unclean thing. We're all like an unclean thing and that all of our righteousness, and he says they are filthy rags. Okay, why does he talk about filthy rags here? Isaiah is actually painting a graphic descriptive picture of what our own works before the guise of God in our own righteousness, what it actually means to God. And that reference there, filthy rags, is in reference to the soiled rags within a woman's menstrual cycle is literally what that passage is talking about. And the mere fact that me saying that some of you have this gross look on your face because Isaiah wanted to paint a graphic picture before us that our rags are nothing but that in the eyes of God. It goes on and says in other passages here, specifically in chapter uh, 3, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is the law, blameless. What he just says here is Paul says, listen, if there's anyone that thinks that they are righteous before God, I more than anyone think that. And I have grounds to say that I was righteous because I was the king, so to speak, of the righteous people. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Everything that the law required me to do, I was the top. Then Paul says, but what things I thought were gained to me, those I've counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. What does Isaiah say? Our righteousness are as filthy rags. Paul says that my own righteousness, my good works is nothing but trash and rubbish. The King James actually refers to it as dung before the eyes of God. As we transition through this chapter, James now speaks to the manifestation of our genuine faith through three examples. What he does really in the final verses here, verses 21 through 26, is leads us to our final point this morning. Genuine faith manifests itself through genuine works. The first thing he does is he starts off with Abraham. In verses 21 through 24, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? 
when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Do you see that faith was working together with his works and that by works faith was made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God? You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. The question that is often asked is this, how did those in the Old Testament that lived before Christ died on the cross for our sins, how did they receive Christ? How did they become saved? And the common notion is they kept the law. Well, that was impossible for anyone to keep the law. Matter of fact, the purpose of the law was to show us how just imperfect we truly were. Galatians chapter 3 verse 11 says, But no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, and that is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So the way that people went to heaven in the Old Testament is they had faith in who God was, and they acted upon that in that faith, therefore evidencing their life changed by a faith in God. So, for example, Abraham. When the Bible says that Abraham was justified by his works, it wasn't the works that Abraham did in order that saved him. You think about the life of Abraham. God approached Abraham, told Abraham to leave, right? I got uh, Abraham, I have a big plan for you, but you need to leave and take your family and move. I'm going to tell you where to go when you move, but you just need to go and start walking. What did Abraham do? He acted upon that in faith. Okay, God, you called me, so therefore I'm going to follow you and continue to do what you call me to do. He had faith in God. Abraham was told by God to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. And so he goes and he brings Isaac up to the mount, right? You know the story. And just as he's about to sacrifice Isaac, God interrupts that. Again, Abraham revealing that he had faith in God. So that's what it means by Abraham was justified by his works. In other words, his faith was revealed in his actions of what he did in following the will of God. That's the first example that he gives. His faith revealed, or his actions revealed his true faith. They were manifested by acting upon God's will. By using the example of Abraham, James is complementing Paul's teaching of salvation. I read earlier Ephesians chapter 2. You can write this on the side. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that... Those two passages there, they address the faith alone aspect that saves. But then it continues in that passage. It says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in the image of Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk with him. So what that second part of that verse does is it demonstrates the fact that genuine faith is manifested through our walk with the Lord. In verse 25, James moves on to his second example. He says, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Again, if you were to go back to the account of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, she claims to God be in heaven above and on earth beneath. Within that phrase, she's recognizing the sovereign rule of God. In essence, she's placing her faith in God. And then she more or less has an opportunity now to act upon that faith. And we understand that the two spies come before her, and we're not here to talk about whether or not she's justified in her lying. That's a different subject, because the Bible never actually uh, approves of that. But she did act in faith, and she hid those two messengers of God, therefore revealing her faith in God. God, I'm going to follow your plan, and this is what you're calling me to do now. I'm going to follow that. I'm going to act in faith in that. Again, revealing Abraham or or Rahab's true conversion. The final illustration that James uses in verse 26. He says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. 
James says that just as our body is dead when the spirit departs from it, our faith proves to be disingenuous when our actions don't back up our profession. When Cason and Emerson were born on both occasions, praise the Lord, they were born, they, they were delivered, and what was the first thing they were doing? Screaming and crying. It wasn't the screaming and crying that brought them life. The screaming and crying was evidence of the life that they had. In our salvation, it's not the works that save us. The works is evidence of the genuine faith that we already have in the Lord. Take your Bibles with me as we close this morning, and I want you to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, the most famous passage in all of Scripture. It's John 3.16. In John 3.16, he is having a conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus being one of the Pharisees, he was struggling with the realization of this faith. As he's going up to Jesus and he's asking him, What's, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Or how can I be, uh, you know, go to heaven? Jesus responds back to him. He says, you must be born again. Well, Nicodemus is like, that sounds weird. Do I need to go back into my mother's womb? Like, what does that mean? And so Jesus explains to him what being born again means. And he gives him hope. John chapter 3, verse 16, whom you, uh, you all know well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he goes on and says in verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So that's the faith aspect. It says if you're going to be born again, you have to recognize your need for a Savior based upon your sin. Your sin is what separates you from the Father. The only way you can have that restored is by placing your faith and trust in Christ. So that's the faith aspect. That's the faith alone aspect. But that's where we usually stop when witnessing to people. Look at what Jesus continues and says at the end of his speaking time in verses 18 through 21. He says this, He who believes in me is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So you got your profession. And what Jesus says is those that are genuinely saved will reveal their relationship with the Lord through their actions. Does that mean perfection? No. But it does mean faithfulness to God. It does mean having a desire to be in church and fellowship with the believers and grow in Christ and do the will of God and seek His face. That's what it does mean. And so taking a self-examination here, what James wants the readers to understand, that if you've made a profession of faith and you've called out for Christ to be your Savior, prayed that salvation prayer, but there's really no difference between your life before you did that and your life now, then you need to take a serious heart examination. But that's only something you can do between you and God. The choice is yours. Is God working in your heart this morning? And how will you respond?